so then that's a very limited number of people, even just globally and certainly within the U.S., that have this kind of expert knowledge. So how expert is it really? Because if I, if I said broadly I'm interested in couple dynamics, for example, and I put in couple dynamics into a search engine such as like PsycInfo to look at research articles, there's tens of thousands of things published. No one person can read all of that. Right. And this kind of goes back to part of the question is how much can you really know? Does that really impact its usability if we're only reading a slice of kind of like all this research out there to be able to really translate it and get it to clinicians to use? Welcome to Peer Spectrum, where we journey through medicine's overlooked and unexplored corners. Experience what it's like practicing medicine on the International Space Station, operating on an NFL Super Bowl quarterback, treating remote patients in Antarctica, or flying over the burning reactor at Chernobyl. Ride along with a former Navy SEAL physician embedded with elite Delta Force commandos. Meet renowned physicians, economists, researchers, and journalists deconstructing subjects as diverse as psychedelics, meditation, science crowdfunding, artificial intelligence, architecture, and more. Join orthopedic surgeon Dr. Keith Mankin, Colin Miller, and our growing tribe as we explore medicine en route. All right, welcome back. Today we're exploring a particular challenge in the mental health space, that is the gulf between academic research and real-world clinical practice. As you'll hear in this episode, one of the big open secrets in mental health is that very little of the published articles in psychology and psychiatry journals are ever actually read by practicing mental health professionals. Today we have two guests who are working hard not only to identify and realize these challenges, but do something about them. This includes addressing one common complaint, that this research rarely reflects the complicated reality of treating patients in practice or to quote one clinician in the survey we'll link to in the show notes, quote, that's how research is. You have these carefully pre-selected, pre-screened, uncomplicated patients. Research rarely reflects reality of who walks through my door, unquote. Our first guest is Dr. Scott Browning. He is a researcher and professor of psychology at Chestnut Hill College. He's joined by his colleague and co-author, Dr. Brad Van Eden Moorfield. He's also a researcher and professor of family science and human development at Montclair State University. Their new book, coming out just this week and published by the American Psychological Association, is titled Treating Contemporary Families Toward a More Inclusive Clinical Practice. This is a great conversation. Uh, We really enjoyed having Scott and Brad on the show with us. I think you'll enjoy it as well. With that said, let's get started. But but I think that, you know, APA made an attempt in in the American Psychologist and the Psychological Monitor. They have a little summary in the beginning of those journals um, that have little ideas of here's some of the research that might be relevant to you. And then there's this thing called SciScan, which is this sort of brief abstract of things that might be relevant because I think they recognize that the divide between the clinical and the research thinker is really wider for us. It's, it's truly a wider gap between their reality and our reality in terms of what we sort of need. So I think that the comparison to scientists is sort of, I think social science and hard science are in fact kind of distinct, at least. And I mean, Brad may disagree, but that's my sense. It's, you know, I would jump in and maybe add a little bit of a additional dimension to it. I was actually sitting with one of my doctoral students yesterday, having a similar conversation. And I asked her, I said, what does it mean to you to become a scholar that has an expertise? So what does it mean to be an expert in your specific area? Right. And just to kind of put it in a little bit more context, um, you know, about one percent, less than two percent of the population gets a doctorate in some form. And that's across every single discipline, hard science, social science, humanities, um, indies, like all of this, you know, and within that, like we have very kind of smaller areas. Right. Um, So then that's a very limited number of people, even just globally and certainly within the U.S., that have this kind of expert knowledge. So how expert is it really? Because if I if I said broadly, I'm interested in couple dynamics, for example, and I put in couple dynamics into a search engine, such as like PsycInfo to look at research articles, there's tens of thousands of things published. No one person can read all of that. Right. And this kind of goes back to part of the question is how much can you really know, quote unquote, um, you know, and how much 
does that really impact its usability if we're only reading a slice of kind of like all this research out there to be able to really translate it and get it to clinicians to use? Um, you know, and it's also an area where I think a lot of bias comes in because we will probably unconsciously select certain articles to read, which then reinforce certain perspectives we have. And if we're not really monitoring that, then we could perpetuate certain biases or have a really uncritical view. I think well, you probably um, see the same thing in citations too, right? Yeah, exactly. People cite the same people over and over because, you know, certain people like raise to status in some way and become known. So everybody reads their stuff and maybe not some of the other things that are really good and strong. Um, but going back to some of Scott's points too, because there is so much, right? And clinicians have far less time to read through it, nor, and they really don't have access, right? Clinicians don't have access to psych info and the money to pay to get these articles to read. So that like furthers these silos unless they're a small percentage that are connected to universities. So it really should be a responsibility of the researchers to try and get this information out there. And one of the pieces that I think really should be the focus of disseminating to clinicians is that we provide a very critical view and we indicate how strong the research findings are or how weak they are, right? So that they can better be positioned to figure out what's most usable. Um, and, you know, so that I think is a really important piece that just doesn't get talked about because not all research is good. Like all research is flawed to one degree or another, like right. none of it is perfect. Like yeah. that's just impossible. The definition, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think, and if I could jump on Brad's thing yeah. there. So in other words, the clinician sees a research study that might be kind of mediocre, mm -hmm. but it exactly speaks to the population. They're gonna see this adoptive family. And this research said that adoptive families should have this kind of interaction. And they say, great. And you know, finally, there's a finding that makes sense to me. They jump on it. And like Brad's saying, they have very little idea if it's good research or not, but the fact that it said what they needed, they say, oh my God, I got research support. I know that I should have research support. And, th and then they're off and running. And then the researcher says, oh, darn, you know, I wish you'd seen this, 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 and this before you made that assumption. <laughs> but the clinical person is like gone. They're already off and running. Right, yeah. I didn't, I didn't mean you to listen to me. <laughs> that, was, that, was just a, that was just a theoretical study. What are you doing? Hypoth hypotheses. What, um, so this, this brings up a couple of questions. Setting your book aside for a moment, we'll return to it, obviously. Um, is there a move to have some sort of clinical driver for research? Are, the, are academics beginning to see that there's this gap and um, saying, you know, it, saying, well, what should we be studying to make ourselves? Because because can't help them. I mean, small, closed society, everybody's reading each other's papers, but that doesn't really help them. They need to somehow get their research, their information out to the real world. Has there been a movement to try to bring the clinicians into the, the deciding what questions should we be asking? I think from... Um, in some ways, people have started to acknowledge it, but they haven't necessarily um, walked the talk. So they're talking the talk a little bit, but they're not really walking too much. Um, it, it's more been this kind of like one-way process of, you know, researchers are kind of like in their little place doing research. And then sometimes it gets shared with clinicians or policymakers. Sometimes it just sits on a shelf published somewhere. Um, but very few people are actually going to the clinicians and saying, what do you need? Or the people that are using these services that our work is supposed to be helping, asking them, what do you really need? What questions do you think we should be asking? And that, that's a huge problem that we don't do that. From my perspective, um, there have been attempts in the past few years to bring in a more translational science model mm -hmm. that is intended to kind of connect all of this in almost like a feedback loop. So you've got some basic science that research is just done for research. You've got some that's applied to figure out like, how can we take this basic research finding, 
and use it in the real world and some research on clinical intervention um, and then how it gets disseminated to policymakers, practitioners, and theoretically where the lay public should be included in this. So there's a, a framework that's been developing in just the past couple of years that of course borrows on medical science and implementation translational science models from there. Um, but it's it, it needs to be pushed further and more quickly. Mm-hmm. I do think at least within family science that historically has always had some kind of applied arm and connection to clinical work as well is more rapidly pushing forward with these ideas. And we're also starting to see some research methods get used more widely that does just that and brings the lay public on as collaborators, research collaborators, where they're driving a lot of the research studies. And this is kind of an umbrella of um, action research models, participatory action research models. I think that those hold a lot of promise for creating real world solutions, especially for community problems, but also just everyday problems that we as people and families experience. Yeah. But but to talk about the the problem here is that, you know, here Brad Simon is absolutely right. But in other words, in medicine, you all know New England Journal of Medicine, the Lancet, like in other words, you, you ask a psychologist, what are the main journal that you're gonna go that's gonna have translational science? They say, I don't know. You know, like it would, you know, there wouldn't be any sense that this is the journal that I need to be sort of, you know, accessing in order to make those links easier. That is not known. So even if, even when the researchers are doing this, somehow the clinicians have to start saying, we desperately need you to help inform us. But since they're not asking that question, you know, it remains this sort of theoretical aspect that the field says, yes, we need to do it. And APA books, uh, APA publishing was good enough to say, yeah, we'd love the idea of a book that's doing this. But I don't think that clinical people know enough to ask the questions, you know, sincerely enough. And I don't think researchers are deeply interested in changing their trajectory. So, you know, I think that there, I think Brad's right that the stuff is starting to happen, but it's still not happening at a level where you'd say, okay, here's where it's going to show up. So just to be clear, Scott, it's it's not that there isn't there there is no journal like that, or they just don't look at the journals available in that way. I mean, like you know, in, in my field, so there would be family process. There's a couple of good journals that are considered the best journals, but they're mainly giving research studies, and you don't think of it as being necessarily translational. They no, here's what they do, Colin. They do their research study, and because we got such pressure to be a harder science part of social science, they've becoming more and more research-based, even in these sort of clinical journals, with this little sort of snapshot at the end about this what you can do clinically, which anybody could have written. Like, it's not anything that's really great scholarship, or else you have the journals that are saying, we're totally addressing the clinical issues. We'll have two or three citations in the beginning of the article, but it's really a clinical study. You know, it's a, it's a clinical sort of investigation and we're gonna do case studies and we're gonna make it clinically applicable. But there's no journal that I think of that's really truly saying, how do we present just enough research so that they know they have something grounded and then have really the solid, you know, sort of clinical work that flows from that research directly. I don't think, I think what we did in the book is still incredibly rare. How about that? Even even an open source kind of model where, I know this has happened in epidemiology over the last year and a half with COVID, where people all over the world are just pushing out papers, kind of like a a, a MBER working paper, like the um, Bureau of Economic Research. Um, They're not ready yet. They're just working papers, but they're actually useful because they were building vaccines on this within what a month of mm-hmm. of uh, uh, December that year, um, in twenty twenty. So uh, I know that could get messy, right, Scott? I mean, if it's not really good scholarship, uh, there, there is a risk of using this. But there's, I mean, I also can see a clinician out in the field dealing with a very unique population with unique characteristics. We talked about this last time. They're just saying, "This is what I've seen." You know, this is something that I'm I'm seeing results from. So, that can so be useful. Say, you just have to take it in context, right? Seeing, well, let's see 
have a clinician seeing eating disorders, they might go to an eating disorders journal and they'll, they'll have one in mind, but they're mainly going back to a book. They're mainly going to the library, getting a book, or they're taking CE credits. They're generally not doing a new lit review. Now, again, like we said, about 29% after their doctorate go back to the literature. So I'm not saying it's nobody, but I'm saying that we're still talking about like less than a third really go back and say, well, what is the literature telling us? They're going to find some sort of shortcut version, either a CE version, or they're going to go to the SAMHSA website and get a you know evidence-based support model that'll have the steps on what you do with eating disorders. And not that that's bad. I mean, that is maybe becoming the new version of this, but they're not going back and looking at the literature. <clears throat> I think as, as just a quick idea, like I think it would be helpful if journals um, took some responsibility to say, okay, here's what's published this year. Here's a very kind of lay understanding of the takeaway helpful findings and a little bit about maybe how strong they are and just made that publicly available. Of course, then, you know, the publishing companies might see that as, as cutting into their profits, right? Because there's a money system involved here and that's part of the problem that some of the open access gets around. Some of it requires authors to pay to publish, the pay to play model. Um, there's a few variations there, um, you know, so, but, really, if you think about it, most, again, the clinicians are not going to be paying for this because they don't have resources for that. They are much more likely to go get a book at the library or invest in some books that they see a lot of value in. So I don't think that it would cut in or hurt anything. But again, my guess, and it really is a guess, is publishing companies wouldn't necessarily invest in that. But there's room there to do something, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine the problem. I mean, I know with medical journals, it's, it's extremely expensive to get subscriptions mm -hmm. to that. So mm -hmm. for, in my role, in my job, uh, you know, I don't want to spend thousands of dollars on, on these fees. Yeah. So it's kind of an inside secret. But if you go to a research institution, mm -hmm. say Duke or somewhere else, yeah. even in the lobby, if you use the public Wi-Fi there, mm -hmm. you do have access to everything through PubMed. Right. And, um, you know, I don't know. I mean, of course, the of course, LexisNexis and everybody knows this, but uh, <laughs> I just don't think most people are there. Nobody hangs out in the hospital unless you have a reason to be there. But right. I can see for uh, a psychologist in the field, you know, this is out of your bottom line, your practice, and, and that's, that's tough. So I think that's a real problem. I mean, uh, mm -hmm. in all fields, I mean, if you want this stuff to be useful, you got to pay for it some way. Oh, and and yeah. you can't just dump that on the end users. That's my exactly. Opinion. Exactly. And I think I think we mentioned briefly, um, you know, some researchers are now at least putting information out on Twitter and other social media. So there, there's something more that could be done there, too, where if researchers kind of took responsibility to put pieces out there responsibly um, and then you create the right groups or right ways to get clinicians to follow and researchers to follow clinicians there there could be a broader communication and discourse going on that could be helpful but building something out like that you know would need concerted efforts from somewhere probably so so there's an interesting question about books um <clears throat> even you know a decade a couple decades ago we got the sense that books were not where the information is yeah, you can, I mean, anatomy doesn't change that much um, until it does. But uh, if you read something in the book, it's already 20, 30 years old, and it's been reprocessed. I'm not saying that your book is like that necessarily. But by the time it gets, goes through the publishing process, there, there is a delay. And there, there is a, a level of obsolescence. Um, you chose to make a book. Is there a thought in your mind that this process could turn into a journal? Could there be a journal of translational um, family science or something like that, that that comes out of this? I, I would love to see that. I think, <laughs> I you know, we have a few kind of applied journals that kind of play in that um, playground a little bit and have had some special issues that focus very specifically on translational models. I think the way that we're going, there's room for it. And I think the articles that got published there would probably look very different as well and be shorter and not have these um, really long, intense lit reviews on the front end. They would get right to the methods and the findings the way 
like some public health journals have gone, some of the mm-hmm. science journals have gone. Um, you know, so I think there's a lot of room for there. And my hunch is with the generation, new generation of emerging scholars that have much more of a commitment to doing work that matters in the real world quickly, not five years from now or 10 years from now, but quickly, that that will help speed some of this along. And certainly I think, you know, Scott and I are always going to be out there, you know, screaming and hollering, saying, this is what we need. And this is how we need to do this. Let's, let's push and get to work. So um, I would love to see something like that. And I, you know, Keith, I, I came up with a process and I created a small clinical team. I think it's a fascinating process. And I've tried now five journals and all of them have sort of said, you know, none of them have rejected it, but they're sort of like, we're not sure. It's three pages. It opens with a literature, I mean, like one finding from a journal. I cite the journal, we cite the finding, we give a two paragraphs about why it's an interesting finding, we give a case study, and then we talk about why this was an applied thing. Bum, done in three pages. And I said, you know, this could just be at the end of journals, just a little, yeah. little dessert at the end of journals for people to sort of see how translational science could happen. And no one, I mean, I feel like people should be saying to me, Scott, this is brilliant. I want to run with it. But no one does. So Scott, this is we, brilliant. We do. How Let's about that? <laughs> <laughs> so I do feel sort of frustrated. Yeah. I mean, in, in an era of sort of open publishing, could you do a public uh, a, a journal yourselves? I mean, not you yourselves. You're very busy. But could you find somebody to do that kind of publication for you? You don't have to go through the major publishers, because let's face it, they are protecting a a dinosaur. They're protecting print versions of their journals that really don't exist anymore. Right, right. Exactly. And it's, it's, it's that protecting the dinosaurs, this holding on to tradition, because it's the way we've done it. And it's the way we've built things out. And, you know, it's, we're at a point where we need to do some things radically different because we can't stay behind these walls. We have to get this stuff out there to actually help people and improve their health and well-being. How about funding? So for, for a grant proposal, mm-hmm. say, I don't know, say for example, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation comes in. Mm-hmm. From what I understand, they want to see, they don't just give the money and then walk away. They, they mm-hmm. track what's happening and whatever it is they're doing. Um, tell us a little bit about how grants and funding work in psychology and in your respective fields. And you know, would someone like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, actually, isn't it even Bill and Melinda Gates? Maybe it's split yeah. already. I don't know. But <laughs> yeah. but anyway. I think it's just the Gates Foundation now. I think they Yeah, the- yeah. Um, anyway, um, you know, would they have, you know, if they had an interest in knowing how many times this is cited, how it's being used, maybe they're a little more directional in it. First of all, just tell us how this stuff works and if that could be a driver in a way to make some changes or not. I mean, I think, Colin, that you're right. We, um, I was on, I was primary investigator on a, um, a journal that looked at, I mean, at a, a grant that looked at interfamilial homicide. What happens to a family when a family member is murdered by a family member? And we, um, you know, interviewed 20 people who'd been through that situation. We had, it was like a $300,000 grant. And we ended up producing a very useful manual and it also produced a journal article in a, a, a journal about violence. Um, and then we submitted a sort of a research finding to the grant. So yes, the manual that we came up with, I think was useful, but I don't think that manual is gonna go anywhere. I think it's stuck in some file somewhere. Um, so, you know, we, we sort of did what the grant wanted us to do. And I felt very good about some of the findings in particular. It was amazing how many people sort of wanted to distance themselves from that family member. Like they were never really family. They were always people we didn't really love. And, you know, it was sort of there were interesting findings and there were some clinical implications about integrating trauma and grief and some of the problems there. So it wasn't like there wasn't interesting stuff that came out of it. And it wasn't that the grant people were asking for the wrong questions. I just don't know if anyone knew how to distribute it once it's sort of submitted. So in that case, it wasn't just the grant, the grantee saying, was it the grantee saying, I want to explore this question in this population? Or were you looking at that? Then you oh, no, no, no. They, they put out a, a, a thing in five centers around the country. We happened to be one of the centers. 
said, yeah, yeah, we're, we're interested in this too. You know, the grantor said, this is a big problem. No one understands what we do when there's a murder inside the family. So no, it was the grantor that asked the question. Interesting. I was just going to say, and um, there, there had been some funding calls, both from foundations and places like the National Science Foundation, National Institutes of Health, that have started to elevate translational science and the study of it and dissemination of it. So I think that that is starting and will probably hopefully intensify. I think though, what's interesting to consider with, with your example, Colin, is would one of the foundations particularly have interest in maybe kind of funding some kind of dissemination, whether it's a journal of some type or open access, to become a conduit to get this information out there. I have not considered that. And that makes me kind of excited to go start plugging around the internet and looking at some of these foundations and maybe send, you know, a quick email and say, hey, here's this idea. It seems to fit with the mission of your foundation. Could we chat? I mean, that's really cool. So I'm going to steal your idea. Take it and, and, and it, run. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it might be interesting to actually build that into the grant and see what see if it flies. I mean, it yeah. the because um, you know, I've I've worked on both sides of the grant process. I've reviewed grants, I've written grants. And uh, one of the questions in the review process is this is really interesting work. What do they really think they're gonna do with it? Because if, especially in your field, the way you're describing it, if you're going to write this paper and it's just going to get locked in the vault that is all this um, this scientific literature, then if I was the grantor, I hope I got that right. I'm not sure I'd want to pay for that. I'd want to pay for something that kept getting my involvement out. They're going for the byline paid by a grant from so-and-so foundation. That's marketing. That's advertising. So if they say, we want to do this, but we want the offshoot is for us to have an ongoing journal, ongoing reporting on this problem. Um, I think that a grantor might say, this is the kind of thing we've been looking for. I don't know. I'm, I wish I was on a grant. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, and I think on the one that I did, they did come out with a nice brochure and it was a decent sort of open, you know, so enough to give some of the details. So, so certainly the granting agency wanted their name out and the brochure is fine, but... I don't know how, I think what Brad and what Colin are sort of suggesting is very interesting. This notion of a site where everyone starts to realize I could actually get trans, you know, translational science material from this place. Because as an academic, I would teach my students to look there. Yeah. But right now, I don't have such a place to sort of refer them. Yeah. Let me circle back just for a minute to evidence-based um, practice. Uh, I, I slip into evidence-based medicine, but I don't want to use that expression in this case. Um, uh, so the, the, the problem I always had with it is who's creating the evidence and where do we find it? It's, it? As a practitioner, I didn't want to be told this is the pathway you have to do because evidence. So um, what right now does actual evidence-based clinical practice exist? And is it sort of imposed on the clinicians or are they, or do they have access to what that evidence is? There are two sort of styles on this one. The one is that there are many websites out there, one of them being SAMHSA, which is sort of the mm -hmm. addiction one, um, that you could go on for free and say, I'm interested in someone who has OCD, you know, obsessive compulsive. And you could click it, you could get a nice little idea. Now, again, the problem with these models that are evidence-based um, um, treatments are that, as Brad was saying before, they're generally single-item diagnosis, so they, they can't be comorbid because of the research issues. They had to use a manual, and they're generally with white populations, not across the board, but more often than not. So it's a fairly, you know, in order to make the research solid, you've got a fairly narrow situation that you can then refer to. And there are plenty of them out there. So that part is free. And I think clinicians are using those. So they're suddenly they have some with, with trichotillomania and they're, the person's pulling their hair out. And they look it up and they see nice, solid behavioral interventions. So I do think this is the way clinicians are staying somewhat current and not being unprofessional in their practice. Um, 
And then you have evidence-supported practice, which is really about the idea that you learn the literature, you follow your theory, and then you do some outcome measure so that you say for a wider population that we wouldn't have this nice, narrow, evidence-supported treatment approach, this manualized approach, but that in general, we have a wider perspective, but that involves knowing the literature, having a solid theory, but then always adding in an outcome measure component. And that's the piece that makes it, that then the practitioner becomes a local scientist, which mm -hmm. is George Stryker's term for this. And the local scientist model, I think is beginning to take off and the idea that people realize because of the complexity of these cases, we need to have some way of looking beyond, you know, we may still incorporate an evidence-supported treatment in it. There might be that, you know, the family has some anxiety and we'll use one of those manualized approaches around that person's anxiety. But for the lesbian couple with the sperm, you know, sort of created, I mean, whatever, the, the you know, child that was adopted and one child that has Crohn's disorder and that suddenly we're talking about this sort of diversity of a case that no evidence-based um, treatment would have actually addressed then we have to sort of say, how do we expand it by creating a, lo a, clinical, a local clinical scientist? Brad, is there any uh, attempt from the researchers to incorporate the science and outcomes that come from the local scientist? Because one of the problems that, with, that I found with the clinical medicine and clinical um, evidence-based, excuse me, is that it all comes from on high and we're supposed to just do what we're told to do, which really sticks in the craw. Um, so I'm wondering if we do have these mechanisms to do some sort of outcomes, isn't that a great way to capture a larger population and maybe enhance the research? Yeah, I completely agree with everything you're saying. And I wish I could say that there was some, you know, more movement and communication in that direction. And, and it's simply not there except for very few places, right? It's, it's becoming a little bit more, but it's, it's just not there the way it needs to be. And it typically, you know, has a history of not even being viewed as valuable, right? Research right. should exist from up here and, and flow down. And that's what the institution values. And there's enough people now starting to push back on that and say, well, why? And, you know, who was that original institution up there that said this? And then that's problematic too. Um, so, you know, that's the way we need to go, but we're just not there yet. Well, forgive me for my ignorance here because I, I don't know how this works, but you can help me here. If I were to go see a therapist and say my insurance is covering that, I, I, I think there's some issues with that. It's not not, not as much as this is covered. Yeah, but, but yeah, it's, it's very possible that that could be that you'd have insurance that would cover your therapy. Okay, so if, if I do that and it's covered, do psychologists and psychiatrists bill in a similar way to doctors? Did they use CPT codes for different, like the, the condition you just yeah, mentioned? Yeah, they might Scott, use the DSM code or they might use the CPT. There is there is a sort of typology, you know, that's- So whatever I, I present economy. with or I, I describe as a patient, that, that those things are documented. And, and in theory, you know, you could do a meta-analysis of medical records. I mean, is, am I in the right direction here or is that? Well, but kind of, but, but look at the problem. In other words, I have to follow the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual. Right, right. And that is an entirely individually based manual. So when I'm seeing a couple and they're really, neither of the partners has a diagnosable condition, they have an interactional condition, I have to use a thing called a V code that's not covered by insurance. So in other words, the minute I wanna be a systems thinker, I'm told, well, you gotta somehow find pathology somewhere to validate that you're doing this treatment. And yet if you're not seeing pathology or you're in a field that's saying that pathology has been overused in psychology, the, the, the insurance people are pushing you back into it in order to get the client money. Wow. And then many of them, um, you know, and Scott, correct me if I'm wrong, because it's, it's been a couple of years since I had to deal with this, then we'll try to dictate certain treatments and amount of treatment provided and stuff like that. So, um, you know, it takes a lot, the insurance companies kind of dictate a lot of treatment instead of the person providing it, right? And we see that with, I think, you know, prescription and other medical practices, what they'll approve this test, but not this test, even though the doctor wants, you know, a certain one, um, there's pushback. So there's always that dance there that gets in the way of actually helping people in many instances.
Oh, boy, yeah. talk about our yeah. world, Keith, that's for sure. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's, I'm having flashbacks, so I'm not. <laughs> um, and apropos of nothing, and we can even leave this out, I'm just curious, Does is any of this um, uh, handled in the ICD-10? Is, there, is there a section, in, or do you know, do you use the ICD-10 at all, or is it all DSM? ICD is respected, and so I think that some places do say ICD or DCM, um, a okay. DSM. So I think that there are times that they're interchangeable. Okay, just But I curious. don't think the ICD is particularly systemic either. No, I agree. I think they tried and, and messed up, but and it's still pathology driven. You still, right. you've got to find the, the illness. You've got to find something wrong in order to right. get the third parties to pay, which is, right. you know, this is, that's another several hours of discussion, yeah. which we should have sometime. I'd be delighted. I mean, sometimes yeah. it really might be that the family is adjusting to a, they have a son on the spectrum. And yes, you, you know, the diagnosis can be the kid on the spectrum. And that's what, but then the question is, well, can we really validate or can we really show that the family should be seen or is it just behavioral treatment for the kid on the spectrum? And I'm saying, no, we have to treat the family, but the insurance is saying, yeah, but the, the real patient is the boy. And there are even agencies that say, you can't bring in the family. You can only bring in the child if that's the patient. Like, I'm not saying it happens across the board, but there are examples where this is happening. Right. So we brought up a whole bunch of different issues in terms of communication, in terms of the translation of research into, um, into clinical practice. Can you both address how does your book um, solve these or at least attempt to solve these? Brad, go ahead. Why don't you start? Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, I think the biggest thing is we put clinicians and researchers in the virtual room together. And we laid out a process that was meant at the heart of it to facilitate dialogue and conversation so that they could um, kind of get on a similar page and figure out like, where is the really strong research that is usable for the types of situations that are really seen commonly by clinicians in practice? Like where are those points of intervention that families experience that we can get in and help? What do we know about that? And then how can we merge all that together to lay out a treatment plan to actually then assist um, these families? So, you know, really just laying out a process of facilitated communication and dialogue so that they can then write that up. Um, was the biggest thing, and then to do it inclusively so it's not just about one family type, right? So that it really is about multiple families, family types experiencing something like conflict over co-parenting, for example. And, and I think that I agree with Brad entirely, and we added at the very end an outcome measure, two outcome measures that are very easy, inexpensive, um, and, you know, trying to keep up with practice as normal, not something, the problem with a lot of the outcome measures is that they're very good, but they take a half an hour. And a lot of people don't want to commit that half an hour into therapy because it, you know, it might be that you have to do it every fifth or sixth session and it just feels like it's taking away too much. So we had to make it fast and there are increasing ways to make it sort of quick. So this book has both exactly this idea of what Brad's saying that we had the researchers come up with a small, section that really talked about the research that's relevant to these four family types in that situation. So let's say, for example, co-parenting. Since we know co-parenting is particularly difficult for divorced families, for step families, for families with a child on the spectrum, um, and I forget what the fourth one was, but you take four family types and say they are particularly challenged when it comes to co-parenting. And then you had the researcher sort of say to the clinician, what studies, and I mean, the, and I'm sorry, the clinician saying to the researchers, what studies? And the researcher would come back and say, you know what, there may be only like seven or eight really good studies that hit exactly the stuff you need. And we said, great, that's all, that's all we need. You know, so that the section would have maybe just, instead of the normal 35 references that you'd sort of like bring out everything in the kitchen sink, they'd come up with the ones that were really useful so that each one of the ones that they write about, the clinical reader says, that's important. You know, that's something that I could use. 
And so then we flowed right from there with the clinical person saying, here's why this research was important to me. And here's a clinical example. And here's the intervention that uses that research. So we, we asked them to do everything that was linked so that it really was, in, in Brad's words, translational science, that it, that it created a series of, so we looked at divorced families, step families, you know, families which experience violence, queer couples, um, you know, multi-generational families, South Asian families, you know, interracial families, African-American families. And we took all these family types and began to say, where are some of their unique difficulties occurring? And can we help make this, the, the research and the clinical work match on these? And I think this book does it. Obviously, there are many families that we leave out and many interactional problems that we leave out. But I think we've made a good start. Um. So we've we've talked about the process a lot. You know, let's bring back as you've done. Let's bring it back to the content, especially now. We touched on the fact that this that the whole process, uh, sorry, the whole project has been during COVID time because people had you know had access to um, to um, virtual meetings and things like that. As uh, practitioners and researchers in this field, could you comment on how important the family interactions are now and ha how they've changed, or maybe you can't tell yet, but how you anticipate they'll have changed because of the pandemic, because of the lockdowns? I think there's been a huge change yeah. in so many ways. I mean, even for um, a parent or parents with kids that all of a sudden were at home, everyone was at home in a very shared space and when they're multi-generational families and a very shared space 24 seven um, there's a lot more stress and a lot more need to really figure out some boundaries so that people can kind of continue to nurture themselves to deal with the stress and each other right um, so some of the early kind of evidence if you will coming out really has tried to document this and figure out how families have tried to kind of navigate this added stress um, and come together. And we've seen um, a few kind of emergent studies have shown that some of the couple instability, the likelihood for divorce really increased with this once, mm -hmm. which is, um, I always think about like in grad school, I read this article that showed when couples come back from vacation, there's a blip up in divorce likelihood because they maybe have um, been able to kind of live separate lives and work and not be totally together 24 seven. But after a week together, they're like, oh my gosh, who is this person? Like, I, I can't do this anymore. So they come back and really start ruminating about should we divorce? Should we separate? You know, and I, I think that's a week. So COVID has been how many months, you know, and over a year for some people that they've been really kind of locked up in their home. You know, so moving forward, my guess is divorce rates are going to start increasing, mm -hmm. right? And because of the stress and the added conflict, which we know is, is happening and would, there's going to be dips in health, both individual and family health as well over the next few years. And then it'll probably stabilize again, you know, and then layer in like the economic impacts and all of that. So you know, just the, the mental strain, but the physical stress and what it's done, those impacts are not well known, but we can make a really educated guess that they're extremely um, substantial and they're going to persist for years and years. And for those families that are in additional marginalized positions and for families of color, low income families, um, you know, so on and so forth, those impacts are gonna be complicated even more and the impacts will persist even longer. So Keith, when you bring up a question like that, it makes me think about being an editor. There are certain places I learned a lot in this book. You know, like some of the stuff I knew, but a lot of it I learned. And I learned a lot about inter, um, um, I'm blank on the term, IPV, um, intimate partner violence. And in terms of inter um, intimate partner violence, they're really affected by the pandemic right. because suddenly yeah. they're in a position they're where they're up. really much more vulnerable. But the other population that I'd never really thought of, and because we had a chapter in the back of the book that was really talking about couples in which one member is losing their sight and, and couples in which one member is hard of hearing or deaf. And 
what struck me was that in this pandemic, deaf people, masks make it almost impossible mm. for them to be able to sort of lip read and that it's really created an incredible isolation when they were decent at lip reading um, to suddenly not have any access to it. So I, I don't know the literature the way Brad knows it, but I have been struck by those two populations getting slammed by the pandemic. It's kind of a different question, but I was thinking about this when I was going through the book draft and a lot of these groups and, and the, the abuse and the scenarios we've talked about and you guys look at in the book, it's really heartbreaking stuff. And especially with children. I mean, tell us a little bit about what it's like as a researcher, you know, working, you know, very closely with people like this. I imagine it's got to take a toll on therapists, researchers. How do you deal with that? I mean, just give us a, it's probably a long answer, but you know, I'm just kind of curious about that. Because I'm looking at these and I'm like, my God, you know, these children, what they're going through, uh, it'd be it, it, one, very difficult to just be a dispassionate researcher examining it, not some way, in some way intervene, try to do something about it, uh, just as a layperson. You know, I, I really think, Colin, at least if I can answer part of it, I think being a systems thinker is helpful for me because I really watch how the pieces are sort of bouncing off. So when I'm working with a family of homicide, Yes, I'm conscious that we're talking about incredible sadness, the loss of a person due to murder and, and the effect of that and the trauma that it involves. But when I was supervising at an agency called Anti-Violence Partnership that was dealing with families of murder, that's all they see, because um, Philadelphia, unfortunately, has a high murder rate. Um, you know, it was interesting how you'd have some clinicians that had been able to be there for years and they somehow remained so committed and able to sort of both feel it, but not connect to it. And other people would do it for three months and would be done, burned out. And I honestly don't know what makes the distinction between the person that takes it all in and it starts to hurt them versus the person who actually is very kind and takes it in, but also knows that their boundaries are sufficient to not have it hurt them. I, I really don't know the difference, but yet I saw the difference. Yeah. yeah, I think I'll pick up on the word boundary because, you know, I even think about when I was still practicing, I had like an hour commute each way and I used that time to really kind of process everything that I then was allowed to feel um, from that day, you know, and I worked primarily in the emergency services part, the crisis and access part of the unit. And, you know, I was dealing with people who were homicidal, suicidal, people coming in because they had been hurt from um, domestic violence, you know, so that that emotionally is a lot. And you can't like feel that necessarily in the moment. You have to stay on that line of, of empathy. So I was fortunate to have that time. And I learned that that was a really good way for me to process it. So when doing research now, I think when it's like a quantitative survey, it's, it's a lot different. You don't have those emotional reactions. Um, certainly when you run your analytics and everything and you see findings that, you know, make you feel bad, um, you can process that. But when doing the more qualitative interviews or focus groups and you're hearing it and seeing it, it it's similar um, to my experiences as a clinician. And I needed that time after um, and making sure I just practice self-care, you know, in certain ways. So, you know, Binging Netflix is, is really helpful for me. And, and I think that, you know, we don't talk a lot about... For long plane rides and for uh, personal reflections. Exactly. We don't talk a lot about the, the role that the psychodynamic part played into our field. But, you know, they really gave us the concept of countertransference. And they really said that we have to understand how each case we're seeing connects to our own personal sense and our own vulnerability because of our past. And I think that their concept is something that most supervisors are, are aware of, that they do talk to people of. If there's extra vulnerability there, is there something about yourself that's being really particularly tapped into? It's not just sad, it's also personally relevant. Hmm. So I think the dynamic folks deserve credit for sort of helping us think about how do we assist people in looking at the sort of threads of why these sort of traumatic events can be either more or less painful to us. Yeah, and I think, you know, especially from um, a research perspective, we need to acknowledge that we are people. 
<laughs> we're people and we're studying people and there are emotions and feelings with that. But ultimately it's also kind of this cognitive restructuring where we need to remember that we're doing work to try and help people. Right. And so even though we're kind of hearing this and, and seeing some of these negative things, we're trying to use that to then help. Um, so trying to remind ourselves of that for me is, is really helpful, you know, and to tie it to teaching during the pandemic, because this is kind of a, another uh, way to think about the same thing is early on, especially being here in New Jersey, where the pandemic hit very quickly and, and hard at the start, I found myself doing more emotion work with students than teaching content. Like it, it was much more kind of being with them emotionally, being supportive to them. Um, and I, I found that it was helpful for me to be honest about my emotions as a way to model for them and give them um, tools to, to share their emotions back as well. But I still needed to do a lot of things for self-care after to cope, um, you know, to process that. And I had to experience everything of the pandemic myself too. Um, so again, that comes back to Netflix binge watching and I celebrate Christmas. So I ended up starting to watch Christmas movies every week during the <laughs> pandemic because it was a total escape. I don't know why, but it was a total escape and it just made me yeah. feel the wrong feel with that. Good. We started so, watching home, one last night home, with the girls. Hallmark, so, yeah. we have, uh, we have <laughs> yeah. two, two product placements in this one. So, yeah. um, well, we're up against the end of another hour. Um, are we? Yeah. yeah. So, uh, and we could probably fill a third, but, um, I really want to thank you folks. I want to thank you for your, um, honesty, especially in that last answer and for tackling a problem that clearly is, it's not only in your field, it's in all fields is how do you get the two sides to communicate? Um, I think, um, your process is a model that hopefully, um, uh, psych, Psychologists will follow. Hopefully, we'll be able to to then translate into other medical fields and and let science really do the work that we hope science is supposed to do. Um, it would be really interesting, Colin, don't you think, to um, have you two back on, and uh, when this is released and and when people are reading it, and we can get some feedback and see if people are really saying, "Oh yeah, that's how you do this." So this was really helpful. So yeah. I'd be glad to come back and Keith and Colin, I really appreciate the chance for us to be able to explore this. So I really thank you. Well, like I, echo I, mean, that. I really enjoyed it and anything, but, but anyway, you guys yeah, have a great weekend that. and thanks again. Yeah. You, too. you too. Take care. Bye now. See you, Scott. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye folks. Thanks for joining us on Peer Spectrum. Please support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at peerspectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at peerspectrum.com.